This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. I am really happy to invite a new guest onto the show. And of course, my brother John Freilich and I, since we've taken over, we typically have this rapid fire format where we rapidly review multiple articles in 20 minutes or less. Uh, We're going to do something different this time. So this time, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Robbie Goldstein. Dr. Goldstein is an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School and an infectious diseases physician at MGH, known as Mass General Hospital. I've also heard it as man's greatest hospital. I'm not sure that's still the case. I'll I'll find out from Dr. Goldstein. Um, He is also the medical director of the Transgender Health Program at MGH, and I am super excited to have him on the show. Robbie, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me on the show. And I guess I should have asked up front, is it okay if I just call you Robbie or, or should we keep it more formal? Absolutely. All of my patients call me Robbie, so I'm pretty sure you can as well. All right, perfect. So Robbie, I'd love for you just to start out to tell our listeners a little bit about what Mass General has been doing related to COVID-19. I'd love to hear whatever you have to share to find out how we can all learn. I think the thing I've realized the most about Mass General and COVID-19 is that every single hour, our response to this pandemic is changing. If I go back to January and February, when we first started hearing about cases that were coming out of China, the hospital was already ramping up our infection control practices, our treatment algorithms, our coverage of certain services to make sure that we were prepared. As we heard about spread that came to the United States, we ramped up so many of those efforts. And for people who might not know, Mass General is part of a much larger healthcare system in Massachusetts, Partners Healthcare. And we began to export our practices and our guidelines to the other hospitals within the system so that we could lift everybody up and make sure we were all prepared for what was gonna happen. Even with all of that work, as soon as cases started coming into the hospital, We had to immediately turn corners, change course, try to adapt to what was coming at us because the number of patients that were coming in the door was much higher than any model had ever suggested to us or any simulation had ever prepared for. Our hospital has what we called a biothreats team and that biothreats team had worked to create a high level area for people who needed strict isolation precautions and a respiratory precautions unit for those that may need more precautions for an airborne illness like COVID-19, something that's transmitted in respiratory droplets. Very quickly, we realized that those two units were not going to be able to house everybody that we needed to house in the hospital. And so we have changed all of our practices. We've created almost daily a new floor in the hospital that can now take care of people who are either under investigation for COVID or who have tested positive for COVID and are remaining in the hospital. We've done the same with our ICUs, where we tried to bring everyone to one ICU and have now, as of a couple of hours ago, I heard that we're now spread out across nine different ICUs in the hospital to make sure that we can respond to the growing need of patients that are coming in. All right, and can you give us a sense, before COVID-19 happened, um, how many inpatient beds do you have at MGH and approximately how many ICU beds do you have? So the MDH is the largest hospital in Massachusetts. We have about a thousand beds total and 150 of those are ICU beds. Okay. Wow. So, you know, by comparison at the hospital that I work at, I think we're closer to maybe three or 400 and maybe 12 or 15 ICU beds. So, so a whole other scale. So currently, or maybe even a couple of weeks ago, 
what was the procedure for where patients were being physically admitted to? And also, when they got to the emergency department, what sorts of procedures were put in place to set up for precautions and whatnot? So the original plan that we had um, to get people in who were under investigation for a bio threat, something in this case like COVID, but three, four months ago, if we were thinking about Ebola or SARS or MERS, was that people would come into our emergency department and go to the highest level of care in the emergency department, which we call our acute level of care. And they would be put into a negative pressure room and put on strict isolation precautions, which basically means N95 mask face shield, full gown, gloves, and very careful observation to make sure there's no contamination. Once they were evaluated, if they needed an ICU, they would go to our medical ICU beds. If they weren't that acute in their needs and could go to a general medicine floor, we sent them to what we were calling the special pathogens unit. And that was one floor of the hospital that had an increased number of negative pressure rooms and nurses that were really trained in infection control practices. When COVID first hit, that was still the plan, and that's how we were pushing people forward. So really acute folks were going to the medical ICU, more stable patients were going to the special pathogens unit, and all coming through the ED. The first piece of that puzzle that actually sort of broke down for us was the sheer number of people who needed evaluation. And so we had to quickly expand our ED capacity. And we ended up in a place where we created what's called the surge clinic or the surge mm -hmm. unit right outside of the ED in the ambulance bay where people could come in, get evaluated and tested, and a decision could be made about going home because they're well enough to go home, even if they may be under investigation, or bringing them into the main part of the emergency department or admitting them to the hospital. Okay. So initially, how many beds was that unit, that special pathogens unit? How many beds was that? Um, the entire unit is around 18 beds that could be converted into the special pathogen part of it. Gotcha. So not a tremendous number, but when we were thinking about a pandemic or an infectious disease outbreak, we thought that would be a sufficient number to get us started. We didn't expect something necessarily to infect the large number of people that we're seeing with COVID. Right. And so what was the turning point in terms of number of patients where you realized this isn't enough to give you a, you know, a sense of where we're at at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto? We have seven or so patients hospitalized with COVID and a couple in the ICU, but we're certainly wondering what do we do next and when are the numbers really going to start to spike? So let's say the big turning point happened about a week ago, maybe eight to nine days ago, when we went from being able to house everyone on one floor who was positive and having some overflow for people who were under investigation to a place where we had to open up a large number of floors. And we're now at a place where 150 people, around 150 people are admitted to the hospital with COVID, diagnosed positive test. There are around 70 people in our ICUs right now diagnosed with COVID requiring mechanical ventilation and ICU level of care and an even larger number of people who are under investigation. That change wow. happened really overnight about a week ago where we started to see that we were on the exponential part of the curve. Okay. And we're recording this episode on uh, April 3rd. So I guess we're sort of talking March 25th or so is when things seem to really take a turn. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're also very much aware that we are at the base of the curve right now. And the modeling suggests that the peak 
in Massachusetts at least, in terms of number of people admitted to the hospital, will probably be somewhere around April 16th, with the number of people admitted to the ICUs maybe a few days after that, just based on hospital trajectory. Okay, that's uh, slightly frightening. So let's come back to that, because I want to find out, you know, what are you guys going to do next? But right now, when patients are being assessed in the emergency department, and let's say it's determined that, yes, they should be hospitalized, and you're waiting for the test result, right now, what's a turnaround time between when you test someone and when you get their result back? So that is an amazing story of innovation and really hard work at our hospital and really across Massachusetts. When we first started admitting patients with COVID, we built our own in-house test, which took a long time. It was manual extraction from a nasal swab that then went into an assay that took an hour or so to run and then manual readout of the assay. And so we were running two batches a day and it would take about 12 hours or longer to get the results from someone's test. That probably was how things were about two and a half to three weeks ago. We then have been able to expand our in-house capabilities, both the number of tests that we're doing and also the type of assay we're doing. So now we have an assay that can be done start to finish from swab to result in four hours. That is pretty high throughput. We can test as many people as we need to as they come through. And we've partnered with people outside the hospital, like the Department of Public Health in Massachusetts and the Broad Institute at MIT and Harvard to use an even higher throughput assay that can get us a large number of people, mostly outpatients, tested very, very quickly with a great turnaround. So we were at a place where four hours is about where we are from swab of the nose or the nasopharynx to positive or negative result. Okay, that's absolutely incredible. I think at most hospitals in Ontario... We're looking at um, some, it's multiple days, believe it or not. Um, At other uh, hospitals, it's more on that sort of 12-hour, maybe 24-hour turnaround time. So one tricky aspect right now is where do the people who are under investigation, the PUIs we're calling them, you know, where should they go while they wait those 12 or 24 hours? So I'm curious what you guys were doing back when you were waiting, maybe 12 to 24 hours. Was there a PUI ward? Were they waiting in the emergency department? How did that work? They were, as they were tested and under investigation, they were treated as if they were COVID positive. And so they were taken to specific floors in the hospital for people under investigation. They were put on strict isolation precautions so that if they were positive, we weren't walking in and potentially spreading the infection to other people in the hospital. And if they needed any aerosolizing procedure, so either a nebulizer, CPAP or BiPAP or intubation or any type of procedure that might aerosolize whatever they had, even if they were under investigation, we were doing that with N95s and very strict negative pressure precautions to make sure that we were treating everybody as a positive and taking this as seriously as possible. Okay. And then let's say a test result were to come back negative. Does that mean, okay, time to take them off precautions? Um, How do you make that decision? I've heard some of the partners' hospitals are actually doing two tests. Uh, I'm very curious to hear insights you have to that. It has been an evolving process of how we do this. You're right that each hospital within the partners' healthcare system has a little bit of a different protocol for what they're doing. The Brigham and Women's Hospital, our sister hospital, 
is doing two tests on every person and waiting for both tests to come back before removing any precautions. What we instituted at Mass General is what we're calling a results review team. So it's a team of infectious disease doctors and infection control nurses who review every case under investigation, take into account the clinical history, the positive or negative result, and any imaging that we have, and then try to make a decision about what is the clinical likelihood that this is COVID or not COVID. That is a pretty laborious process and has required a team of seven to eight people working basically 24 hours a day to review 70 to 80 patients each day and check in to see, do they need to remain on precautions? Do they need to remain in the hospital? What do we do about discharge and getting them to the next level of care? But we've been able to keep up the pace because we think it's so important to recognize that the test is not 100%. And there are actually many people at the Brigham and there are many people at Mass General who on their first test are negative and on their second test are positive and they truly do have COVID. And so we do have to be very cognizant that this is still a clinical diagnosis in many ways, and testing is helpful, but not definitive. Okay, that, that's great to know. And when you say two tests, I presume you mean two tests spread out over 24 hours, maybe, or something like that? My belief, and I, because I'm not at the Brigham, I don't know exactly what their time frame is, but I think they're waiting 12 hours between tests in order to get two separate samples. But at MGH, we're not doing the second test on everyone, only on those people that the results review team thinks is a necessary next step. Okay. And then I would love to get even just some estimates. So let's say of 100 people who have a first negative test at MGH, on average, how long are they staying on precautions, realizing that there's lots of variability there? Yeah. So I'd say in the beginning, it was around two to three days that people were staying on precautions. That was because the turnaround of the test was shorter or was longer. And that was because it took us a little bit longer to figure out the clinical histories and get a sense of what was a true clinical case and what wasn't. Now, I I think we're down closer to around 24 to maybe 36 hours of people remaining on precautions. That takes into account that they show up, they have a concerning clinical syndrome, the ED evaluates them, they get their tests, they go to the floor. You know, there's a lot of steps that are required before they can be taken off precautions. Okay, awesome. And hopefully you guys are going to, uh, you know, publish whatever, you know, whatever sort of algorithm you've come up with to make that decision making, realizing that so much of it is subjective. But, you know, if you have any pearls to share, definitely I'm all ears. Yeah, I would say I'll make a plug for something that MGH did really early on in the process. And I think it's a really great, it's a benefit to the whole global community is that we put our treatment guidelines and our management protocols online and publicly available. And they are updated in real time every single day by a team that we pulled together to think about the latest treatments and to analyze the data and bring new trials in. And we publish them out to the world because we want to share our knowledge so that other hospitals can benefit from the work that we've been doing over the past few weeks. Terrific. Is that the same link I've seen from some folks at the Brigham? Or is this a different link, I wonder? Uh, some of the ICU folks from the Brigham have this terrific website they've they've come up with. Yes. So the Brigham did a really great job of intensive care unit level of care yes. and guidelines around that. These guidelines that I'm referencing are focused on treatment algorithms, who warrants entry into a clinical trial, what are the the common medications that we're prescribing for all people as they walk in the door, how long do you keep people on a certain medication, and actually goes through some of the evidence, both the small randomized trials that we have and the observational studies that are available. Okay, terrific. And 
I'm mindful of the time and I don't want to take up um, too much more of your time. The treatment question is a big question. I think Canada is doing things different than the US. Uh, right now, we have lots of clinical trials that are about to launch. So maybe we won't talk about treatment, but I'd love to hear what has been your approach for you know resident physicians and other healthcare workers. Uh, number one, let's say they were exposed to somebody who was COVID positive. Maybe if we could talk about that first. So we, very early on in, in the process and as things were evolving, made a very clear policy that we would expedite testing for healthcare workers to make sure that we were, in some ways, protecting the workforce and making sure that we had enough people to, to keep working in the hospital. What we were seeing in the first couple of days is that there were potential exposures to people under investigation. People then had some symptoms, a cough, shortness of breath, maybe a fever, and then we were quarantining them for 14 days. And very quickly, we were depleting the workforce in the hospital. That was true for residents and fellows, and it was certainly true for attendings as well, who were getting exposed and having the same symptoms. And so when we were able to ramp up testing, we put in as part of the protocol for testing, if you are a healthcare worker and you have been exposed, or if you're a healthcare worker who has symptoms, then you'll get testing. And we made sure that those got run as quickly as they could. That allowed us to keep up the workforce as much as possible. Um, the other thing that we did um, that I think was actually pretty innovative at MGH is that there are a lot of people who were exposed and were under investigation, healthcare workers, residents in particular, who were quarantined, but either didn't have symptoms or had very mild symptoms, but we knew that they couldn't come back and take care of patients and do face-to-face -face patient care. And we brought them in actually to our biothreats team and to our results review team to help do some telework and be able to continue to contribute and be a part of the workforce, even if they couldn't necessarily go face-to-face -face with patients. It allowed people to continue to be involved, those that really wanted to be involved. And it also made sure that we weren't completely depleting our workforce all the way through. Yeah, that's, that's terrific. So let's say I'm a resident and uh, I have symptoms, I have a sore throat, let's say. So right now, would it be that the resident would then be tested? And then if they're negative, um, how long would you wait until they come back to work? So in, occupational health is handling these on a case-by-case -case basis, which is an enormous job for occupational health. But they are just like our results review team, taking each case and looking at the clinical syndrome. So if you were that person with a sore throat, got tested, the test came back negative, and you also had a positive strep test, or you also said I had symptoms of seasonal allergies and I always get a sore throat when I have seasonal allergies, you might be able to get back to work fairly quickly. If you had a really suspicious exposure, you know, were in the room when someone had an aerosolized procedure, didn't have PPE for some reason or another, and your test came back negative, you may still end up on quarantine for at least seven days in the absence of symptoms or maybe longer. Interesting. Okay, that's really useful to know. And then what about this idea that maybe you're testing too soon? Maybe the resident has such mild symptoms or any healthcare worker has such mild symptoms, maybe the risk of false negative is too high that early on. Any advice to that effect? Um, this is, I think, a concern all around that we don't know the exact window period. We don't know the exact amount of time that it takes between exposure and when you start to have symptoms and when your test will turn positive and what is the sensitivity and specificity at different times. We've sort of taken to the fact that if you're symptomatic, we believe that the test should be positive at that point or at least should fall within the sort of standard positive predictive value and negative predictive value. So 
Again, that's why these like the results review team and the occupational health team have had to do these case by case, because if it is very, very early on, those are the cases when we say you might need a second test 12 hours or 24 hours later so that we can make that decision. Gotcha. So it, it's not a blanket as in, hey, if you're COVID negative, come back to work in 48 hours and we'll go from there. That's not the approach. Absolutely not. Okay. All right. That is very good to know. Um, can I sneak in two more questions, Robbie? Is that okay? Yeah. All right. So, you know, I have to give credit to uh, Dr. Hannah Sachs, who connected us, and she informed me that you carry the BioThreats pager, which sounds like a terrifying pager to have to carry. So what do you get paged about? And who pages the BioThreats pager? Can Donald Trump page you or what? <laughs> no. So um, it's a pager really exclusively used for in-hospital questions. So it is... Um, you know, people who work in the hospital, physicians, nurses, anyone who's in the hospital who might have a question around a bio threat. In the past, it was really focused on SARS and MERS and Ebola and the, the bio threats that we would be concerned about from returning travelers. It has now become almost exclusively a response to COVID. In the beginning, it functioned as everything. So it was the person who went through the clinical history to decide about testing, the person who made decisions around infection control practices, the person who um, helped you interpret whatever the test results may be, and the person who helped figure out what clinical trial you might need to enroll in or what therapy you may want to start. With time, we have shifted those responsibilities to other teams in the hospital, and now it has become really sort of that first line. Someone shows up in the ED, there's a really concerning scenario, and we need to make a decision about, is this COVID or could this be something else? You know, uh, some more complex, nuanced questions that the BioThreats team can answer 24 hours a day because it's staffed all night, wow. all day. Okay. Wow. So so how often would it go off in let's say a 24-hour time period in the in the thick of it? In the in the beginning, we got about 10 pages an hour. Wow. So, you know, wow. about every 6 minutes <laughs> you would get a page. Uh and that was pretty stable and pretty consistent through the day and through the night. It wasn't as if it's it shut off at 10 p.m. So you would just get constant pages all throughout the day. Those have gotcha. shifted and it's become a much more bearable <laughs> uh, amount of pages. Yes, fair enough. Okay, well, I hopefully you get paid on a per page basis or you're getting some sort of raise for all of the hard work that you're doing. Um, I think, you know, I'd love to hear about what you guys are planning in, in next steps. I'm mindful of the time, but maybe in a couple minutes, you know, you said two weeks from now, things might peak how on earth do you expand further? I feel like you got to build a new building at this point in time. Uh, in some ways we do. Um, so our, our hospital has committed to expanding to around 400 ICU beds if it's necessary for us to have that many ICU beds. We have the ability to do that, I think, because we are an incredibly large surgical center and we have a large number of ventilators, anesthesiologists, people who can manage vents, and we have the beds and the space to do that. So we will expand our intensive care capacity in the hospital that will leave us with less beds, general medicine beds. And so we've been part of a citywide effort to expand capacity everywhere. That includes converting rehab facilities into COVID respite facilities. That includes standing up some field hospitals, one that just opened up in Worcester, which is about 60 miles west of Boston, and another that in about a week and a half will open up in the city of Boston. 
that will house around a thousand people who are recovering from COVID or may not be sick enough that they need to be in the hospital, but are sick enough that they need to be observed fairly closely. So we're, we're working to expand capacity because even though the peak may be on April 16th, the curve is going to go for some time, right? We're going to see a large number of people and the non-acute care settings are going to be hit next, right? All of those rehab facilities are going to be hit, the home health aides, and we have to continue to work to build up that workforce so that people can continue to get care once they leave the hospital. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like there's uh, still a lot left to be done. I think as somebody said, you know, this is a marathon, uh, not a sprint. Yeah. It's a fa- it feels like a fast marathon. I think we're all running <laughs> as fast as we can, but it's definitely a marathon. Yeah, f- fair enough. And then uh, final question, Robbie, I hear you are running for Congress. I think maybe 30% of our listeners are from the US. So what can I do to get them to like vote for you? I know nothing about US politics, but what what, what can I do to help? Um, I guess I would say for those people who are in the United States and want to learn more about my congressional life, my congressional campaign, they should go to RobbieForChange.com and they can learn more about me and about the campaign. And um, I'm always happy to talk to people about that. So they can send me an email off the website and we can chat about the, the intersection of politics, public health, uh, and the current COVID crisis. Awesome. So uh, RobbieForChange.com? Exactly. Perfect. We'll have that on our website. Well, uh, Robbie, thank you so, so much for taking the time to chat. Uh, hopefully, we can chat again in a few weeks to see how things have gone, how they're going. But thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Talk soon. The Rounds Table is hosted online at HealthyDebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.